So this morning we continue our walk through the book of Philippians. You'll remember last week we uh, continued to make progress in the first chapter. And we talked about the difference between perception and reality. Perception and reality. You see there are those that looked at Paul's situation, Paul sitting in a jail cell in Rome, and they looked at his situation and they said, man, Paul is a braggart, he's a blowhard, Paul's got exactly what he deserves, I'm just happy that he's in prison. And they were out and they are preaching the gospel, but the way that Paul writes it in the book of Philippians, he says they did it out of two reasons. They did it out of envy, they wanted what Paul had, they wanted a following, and they did it out of rivalry. They didn't want good things for Paul, they wanted good things for themselves, but they were still preaching a true gospel, at least that's what we read in the book of Philippians. And man, then there were those on the other side, and they were preaching this message out of goodwill and out of love. And when Paul looks at this situation, he says, we've got those who are doing it out of goodwill, and we've got those on this side, and, and just for lack of a better term, they're just kind of jerkish, she doesn't really care for them, but they're, they're preaching out of envy and strife. And he says, you know what? It doesn't matter. He says, it absolutely doesn't matter. And in verse 18 how he finished the sermon last week. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, or whether in false or whether in reality, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And today Paul carries the same message. But see, at the height of the passage that we're going to look to today is verse 21. Verse 21 sits at the pinnacle of Paul's argument thus far. And in verse 21 Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Again, Paul says, for me, for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We need to keep that central to our understanding as we march through this passage together. We're going to be in the second half of verse 18 all the way through verse 26. Hopefully, in the next two weeks, we'll begin to wrap up chapter 1 of the four-chapter book, uh, four book of Philippians. Let me read for us these, these six and a half verses. Yes, and I will rejoice. <clears throat> For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I would not at all be ashamed, but, with it full, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, as Paul opens this up, he continues this, this understanding of rejoicing. He picked it up in verse 4 of chapter 1 when he talks about every time he thinks of them, he prays with every remembrance and he characterizes and he says, it's made with joy. And then he says, I rejoice every time Christ is proclaimed, either from the side that's doing it out of goodwill or the side that's doing it because of what it makes them look like. It doesn't matter. I rejoice. And then he comes back into it again. He says, indeed, I rejoice. You see, the joy didn't depend on the, on the good situations going on in Paul's life. It wasn't if Paul said, you know, I've got this new, new guy I'm tied to. We talked last week about how Paul is here and 18 inches away. There's, you know, Roman Joe Imperial Guard tied to him, tethered to him with a chain. Paul's like, this new guy? 
uh, Joe Imperio, he's fantastic. I can't wait for him to come back. We're buddies, we're going to kick it. And so things hadn't necessarily gotten better for Paul. His situation hadn't changed. Remember, we're only in like the 19th verse. And so although it's taken us five Sundays to get here, things hadn't changed for Paul. This is still as he's penning the same letter. And so his rejoicing isn't dependent upon his situation. In the same way, friends, our rejoicing in the gospel, our sharing in joy, is because of what God has done inside of us when he's given us salvation. So it's not ultimately dependent upon our situation. You see, when we begin to evaluate our situations and derive joy based upon how our situation treats us, well, then when I lose my job, when my family situation is rough, when, as it happened yesterday with my family, when our air conditioner went out in a 100-degree heat, I begin to lose my joy. You know you would, too. But see, the reality of the situation, Paul isn't talking about this, this silly joy of, of just kind of being happy-go-lucky. He's talking about this deep joy you can only have in as much as you share in the fellowship of Christ and his sufferings. A joy that says, that belays the sufferings. A joy that is so deep-seated, so ingrained in who you are, that no matter what the situation is, you can look at it and say, I rejoice, I have joy. He goes on and he says, For I know that through your prayers, verse 19, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this is kind of interesting. As Paul talks about this, he says, Hey, you know what? I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be delivered, and it's going to come to me through two primary ways. And the ways we see that is through the prayer and the work of the Spirit. Now, What's interesting is these things are tied together. It's not like they're working in a vacuum. And it's not even as if Paul says, God can't leave me in here. The message has to advance. And so, you know, ipso facto, I'm going to be set free. Paul, if anybody was ever on an A-team in Christianity, it was Paul. Paul's never the guy you wanted on the bench, right? Paul's always the guy you want with a bat in his hand, clutch situations so he could drive in the the, the home run and, and win the game. But Paul isn't saying that. Paul, as he sits in jail, remember he said that the gospel is continuing to be progressed, it's continuing to be advanced. But in this situation, Paul's deliverance, he says, is going to happen because of the Philippians' prayers and because of the work of the Spirit. You see, as Paul sits in this Roman prison and these people sit in Philippi and they're praying for Paul, and they're praying specific things for Paul, they're praying... God, we pray that you would continue to aid Paul. God, we pray that you would continue to work to the release of Paul. Two years he sat in this prison cell. Two years they prayed for him. We need to be intentional about our prayer. We need to be focused in our prayer. But what we also need to realize is that our prayer is more than just saying, I'm going to think good thoughts about you. I'm going to think really positive things. When I think of you, man, I'm thinking only the best. Find those bad things, because I'm thinking only the best for you. You see, prayer is communion, is communication with God. And so when the Philippians prayed to God, it was their prayer sending the Holy Spirit to aid Paul. It was sending him to strengthen Paul. 
It was sending him as an encouragement to Paul. You see, when we pray and we intercede for others, we're asking God to go and do a mighty work in somebody's life. That's how we need to pray. That's how we need to focus as we pray. That God, that you would be sovereign. God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to do a work in these people's lives. That's how we pray for the loss of our community. And that's how the Philippians pray for Paul. And he says, it's going to work for my deliverance. Now, what is he talking about here? You see, deliverance can be rendered a couple of ways. This is the word that we get our word salvation from. So there are those that read this and they say, Paul, what he's talking about is, I pray, or as you pray, it's going to lead to my eventual salvation. It's going to lead to my eventual salvation. Remember how we talked about we are saved in the past, we're currently being saved, it's a process called sanctification, and then we are saved into eternity when we die. There are those that read it and they say, absolutely, this is what Paul's talking about. Absolutely. And there's other people that read it and they say, no, what Paul's talking about is having freedom. You see, soteria, salvation, what it means is freedom from imminent death. Now let's track this out. If Paul stays in this prison, if he's not released at the end, he's executed. So he gains deliverance. He gains salvation in that. But if Paul, as he makes his defense, is set free, then he gains deliverance. He gains salvation in that. Paul is certainly praying for deliverance. And he's going to kind of mete out what he's going for as we continue to walk through this. In verse 20 he writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul looks at the situation, and this is where we begin to despair, right? When things are so bad, so seemingly out of control that we begin to try and put things together and we think about how things could logically work out for us. In this situation, when, when things are out of Paul's control, he looks at it and he says, it's my eager expectation and hope. You see, Paul has hope-filled expectation. It's this intense expectation that what he believed would certainly come true. You see, as the people in Philippi prayed and as the Spirit worked in Paul's life, Paul didn't just sit there and think, man, I really, it'd be really awesome if this worked out for me. But as I evaluate the facts, and I've looked at the trends of, of, of release of prisoners over the last decade or so, things aren't looking good for Paul. In fact, statistics tell me that one out of every one citizens of Rome that is in prison for execution and is executed dies. But every other one of those that is released lives. You see what? It wasn't that Paul sat down and he's looking at these stats. He's looking at trends and how things work out. And, you know, if it's raining outside, Caesar's not in a good mood. Brother hates rain. But if it's sunny and 62 outside, Paul stands a decent chance of getting free. And so Paul's looking for a late autumn, early spring release. You see, as Paul has a conviction from God that he'll be released. It's his earnest expectation that God is going to do the work and that God is going to release him. You see, when you and I pray for things, when we ask God for things, when we beseech the Father for things, we're not sitting there and trying to manipulate the situation. I'm going to make this thing happen. 
but we're relying upon God. We do our due diligence, yes. This isn't licensed to be lazy. But it is a reminder that it is God who, who, who wills and works. It is God who we pray to and God who we follow. Paul says, he's like, I'm not going to be ashamed. This paints here the picture that as Paul gives his argument, he gives his apology before Caesar, that he is going to trust in God, that he won't be put to shame because of his failure to trust in God. You see, we need to make sure that as we, as we advance the gospel, as we're seeking to advance the gospel, that we stand and we boldly proclaim. You remember last week we talked about being bold, and it's just standing in opposed to a natural feeling. You see, as Paul had this feeling well up inside of him for his own safety and for his own security, the temptation was to try and hedge a little bit, to soften his message, to soften the blow of his message. But he says, so that I will not be ashamed, but stand with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. You see, it wasn't that Paul came to this time and he said, now is the time for Paul to grandstand. Now is the time that I've got this audience. Now is the time that I've got everybody watching me that I can say, now hear this. God is awesome. He's going to free Paul. I'm taking autographs after this is over. You see, as Paul said this, Paul says, now is always. He says, hey, look. God has always been central to my life. And now, even more so, he remains central to my life. And this word honored is really kind of cool when we look at it. It's just not that God would get honor, but it's that God would be made higher, more famous, more awesome. That in the marketplace, as they hear about Paul's defense, they would say, that guy serves a God, and he claims that that God set him free. You see, guys, our testimony, our sharing our faith with those in the marketplace, those that we do business with, those that we meet at Walmart, man, it's also God can be made famous. So sharing our faith is more than just sharing the gospel. Sharing our faith is sharing what God is doing in our lives today. Have you evaluated what God is doing in your life today? And who's the last person you told about it? We radically need a culture change of, of gospel saturation where when people think about Ridgecrest and this town, they think, you better be careful. Those people will share their faith with you. I, t- I said, how are you doing to the lady the other day? And 10 minutes later, she was still telling me about how great her God is. I mean, I have places to be. That's who we want to be. If we're going to advance the gospel, that's who we have to be. Whether by life or by death. You see, Paul was firmly committed that God would be honored whether it cost him his life or whether or not he got to live on. And that's why he says in verse 21, and this is the capstone, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, but when the Philippians got this, when they got this word from Paul, and I have to admit, I didn't catch this uh, when I first read through it, but he has this word play that if you'll uh, allow me for a second, I'd like to read to you in Greek. Paul says, ta zain Christos. Kai ta apothenein keridas. Now, if you have an ear that's much better than mine, what you would have heard is the same sounds hit twice. This ain os, ain apothenein keridas, Christos keridas. So what he says is, to live 
Christ. To die, gain. See, there's no difference for Paul. There's absolutely no difference for Paul. But what it comes to is, what is the principle by which we live by? You see, there are a variety of things that impact us. There's a whole culture weighing down upon us that says that we need to succeed in business, we need to do well with family, and we need to have a large house. And by that we measure success, right? Have you heard this? Stop me if this is new for anybody. You're like, I never knew that. I was aiming for the small house, the car that didn't run, and a family that really doesn't care for anybody. Right? If you have that, there's something better. There's the American dream to, to, to strive for. You see, what we need our lives to reflect is that everything about us is Christ. And so, family, so important. Man, if we blow it with our families, if we don't live out a vibrant testimony with our families, then we've lost it. If we don't live out a vibrant testimony in the marketplace and rely upon God for our finances, but also work really hard, we've lost it. But you see, balanced upon all this is that we live as Christ. You see, it's not family and then God. It's not business than God. It's not car than God. It's not anything. But the, the mantra of our life, the saying that we live by should be to live Christ. That when somebody looks at your life and they say, tell me about Mr. Mayo. Man. The pervading aspect of that man's life is Christ. It's no preference. It's no music style. It's not anything. I mean, he loves his wife. He loves his church and he does well. But when I think of him, I think of Christ. When I think about the people in this room, I think Christ. You see, until that is the the characteristic that people think about when they think about me and when they think about us in this room, our work is not done. To live is Christ. And he goes on, he's got this phrase, he says, and to die is gain. Now, how does that work out? It seems like dying is the cessation of life. I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm pretty sure when he dies, he's dead. He's not gaining very much of anything. He's not padding the pocket. He's not reaching any more people. You see, for Paul, he wanted to have as much of Jesus as possible. So when he looks at, at his life, and he says, man, in life, I have as much Jesus as I can get in there. Everything about me screams Jesus. But when I die, I find union with Christ. You see, for a Christian, this, this physical shell, this physical body, when it ceases to... Uh, to take in nutrients when it ceases to operate, and I die, I get to stand before my Lord. I get to stand before my Lord. And so we live our lives in such a way that that could be our personality. That could be what people remember us by, that he lived as Christ, and in the end, he got more Jesus. That she lived a vibrant life, and in the end, she's with her Lord. This is why Christians are able to face death in a remarkably different way than non-Christians. You see, there's not this great unknown for us out there, but at the end of all of these things, man, it stands Christ. And so you might ask, but what about, what about sadness at death? What about this deep, aching loss I have as I've lost my spouse, if I've, as I've lost my sibling, as I've lost these people close to me? See, I'm also reminded that that death was not the way that it was intended. 
You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death entered the picture. And so death is unnatural to the way God intended it. And because it's so unnatural, that's why we suffer and that's why we mourn. But Paul reminds us elsewhere that we don't mourn as those without hope, right? We don't mourn as those without hope. Moving on to verse 22. Paul kind of, he's starting to work this out in his head. He's trying to work this out, exactly what all this means. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, if I'm Paul, and I'm spending two years in a Roman prison, and I get out of prison, I want to take a vacation. I mean, first, I want a hot shower. Second, I want somebody not to stand any closer than 18 inches to me. It's a personal space issue. It's not your breath. It's just I need my space. But for Paul, when he thinks about it, he says, check it out. I'm going to get out of here at some point. I'm going to get out of here at some point. And if I live, this is what that means for you, Philippians. That means fruitful labor. You you see, it wasn't that Paul said, when I get out of here, man, I'm going to take that crown with all those jewels that have freshly been encrusted upon it. I'm going to wear it around a little bit down here. I'm going to cruise around, and you guys are going to treat me to potluck supper after potluck supper after potluck supper. And then when I've had all the mystery meat and congealed salad I can stand, I'm going to start doing stuff again. And it's going to be good. You see, when Paul looked at the situation and he said, at some point, I'm going to get out of here, and there's not going to be a break for him. There's not going to be a pause button for him. It's going to mean fruitful labor. He's going to produce fruit on behalf of the Philippians. You see, as we go through our lives, when we hit the end of our productive years in the industry, whether it be business, whether it be medical profession, whether it be you know, your empty nesters now, your children are gone, and you're just waiting on grandchildren to get there. You see, there's no cessation, there's no stop of action for the call to the gospel ministry. We are all called to advance the gospel in every stage of life. This is why we don't see retirement discussed in the Bible. I believe if you track through the Old Testament that you will find that the Levites could have some type of retirement, but they still did ministry. So if you can prove yourself to be a Levite, we'll find a special ministry for you here at Ridgecrest, I promise. Carol, be write that down. We need a special ministry for those who may or may not be Levites in this church. You see, but for every, every other one of us, for me and for every other person in here, no matter how old you are, how long you've been here, there is still a place, there's still a mandate for productive ministry on your part. Even if, even if you spend two years in a Roman jail shackled 18 inches from somebody else who may or may not smell very good. Paul says it means fruitful labor for me. And then he has this kind of odd phrase, and I have to admit I was a little bit puzzled when I came across it. He says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, I read this and I thought, God gives Paul a lot more say in his life than he does me. Because it seems like he's either going to be put to death or not put to death. And you've got, you know, Paul sitting over here, and you've got God right there. God's like, what do you want to do, Paul? And Paul says, can't tell. I don't know. You see, it's not, that's not how it worked out. But what Paul has given the Philippians here is an insight into what's going on in his mind. Truly, as Paul looks at the situation, it says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if I live, Christ will be proclaimed. What that means for you is fruitful labor, but if I die, I gain Christ. Man, I just don't know what to do. 
I don't know which one's better. I don't know which one's going to happen. I'm not able to discern. I'm not able to tell what's going to happen. And he continues to flesh this out for us in 23 and 24. And he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But in verse 24 he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see, Paul, as he looked at this situation, he says, man, for me to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor. I'm trying to work this out. And I'm hard-pressed between living and dying. It's, it, it figures walking into this narrow corridor, and you can almost feel it crushing around you. Those of you who are claustrophobic are really beginning to, to sense some of the frustration that Paul has as he looks towards life and he looks towards death, and they're crushing down upon him. And he's not able to tell. And he says, my desire is to be with Christ. And he says, that is far, far better. If we look in the original language, it says far, far, even more better. You see, there's no comparison between life in the flesh, life in the body, and life with Christ. One is far, far, infinitely better than the other. And Paul says, I don't know. But in verse 24, we begin to see Paul's heart. We begin to see the heart of somebody that says, you know what? I choose others' needs over my own. We get into the heart of somebody that says, I'm going to live as God would have me to live, not as I would choose for myself. In verse 24, or verse 25 rather, he says, convinced of this, 24, sorry, I'm going to figure it out eventually, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see, when we come across the word flesh in the New Testament, it generally has kind of a bad tendency, doesn't it? You're like, you talk about somebody being in the flesh, and doing the deeds of the flesh, and somebody being in the Spirit and doing the deeds of the Spirit. And so when we come across it here, perhaps if, if you're reading a lot in Romans, you're thinking, oh, Paul, you want to be in that flesh? You see, but here he gives us no indication that he means anything other than being alive, anything other than just living, just a normal life. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He looks at the Philippians, and he looks at himself, and he says, Man, I need to stay on to help the Philippians continue to have joy, to help the Philippians continue to advance in the gospel themselves and to advance the gospel in their community to reach people with the changing message of Jesus Christ. And finally, in 25 and 26, he goes on and says, Convinced of this, so convinced of the fact that it's better for you that I remain, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for what purpose? For your progress in the gospel, your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul is sure of the outcome. He's going to remain and he's going to remain with them. For what purpose? For their progress. You remember when we talked about this word a couple of weeks ago? And Paul tells them as these two groups are preaching the gospel and they're in contention and Paul's in prison and Paul says gospel's being progressed it's being advanced he paints here this idea this picture of advancing in spite of obstacles Paul is telling them that he's going to stay with them 
and for the purpose that they might advance in spite of obstacles and that they might have joy and faith. And then he says, check this out. So that in me you might have ample cause to glory in God when he returns to them again. You see, as they receive this letter carried by Epaphroditus from Paul as he sits in a Roman prison, when they receive this letter from him, Paul is telling them, I'm coming to you guys again. And this is what that's going to do to you. When I come to you again, you're going to have just this great opportunity to revel in God and this great opportunity to glory in God that he has brought me, that he has delivered me from prison and brought me back to you. You see, friends, as we pray for things, as we pray that God would would heal someone, as we pray that God would change someone's heart, we have opportunity to revel in God's work. We have opportunity to glory in God that he has chosen to work in someone's life. And we glorify God based upon his work. And that it brings glory to God when we recognize his work and we recognize his hand in the orchestration through our prayers. But you know, the, the mantra for the whole thing of Paul is to live is Christ and to die is gain. As Paul looked at this situation, as he sat there in prison, as he looked at this situation, and ever since he had come to conversion, the lifestyle of Paul had been to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so I ask you this morning, as you look at your life, as you look at the thing that you spend the most time on, as you look at the things that you spend the most energy on, is it Christ? Is it Christ? Or have you simply managed to squeeze him into a unit of time in your schedule? You see, we serve a God who doesn't, doesn't do well in the second seat of our lives. We serve a God who demands that our lives cry be for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let me pray for us.